0: Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. I'm Dan Snow, and today we're going to be talking about the Crusades with Dan Jones, somebody with whom I am regularly mistaken. That's extremely flattering because Dan Jones is one of the best narrative historians on earth. His books have sold millions of copies. His programme he made in the Knights Templar, which is on HistoryHit.tv, is one of the most successful programmes we have ever made on our new digital history channel. And this episode is a rerun of one we first recorded a couple of years ago, Went round to Dan Jones' house, and we talked about the Crusades. I tried to get him to run me through all the Crusades, from one to, uh, depends how you count them, but, you know, seven-ish. That's, of course, before you get involved in the Crusades in mainland Europe. Don't even start me on those. So there is, of course, plenty to talk about. While we're on the subject, the most glorious castles I have ever visited in my life are the Crusader castles. Aleppo, Jerash, Salahadin's castle in Syria. Just Google it. Just Google it. Karak, Crack de Chevalier, they are unbelievable. Bizarrely, I was there as the Syrian civil war was breaking out. I was making a program about those castles. And many of them had been terribly damaged in that war. You can watch programs like the Crusades, you can watch programs with Dan Jones over on historyhit.tv. And over there, we've got tens of thousands of subscribers. It's the world's best history channel. It's like Netflix for history. You're going to love it. Just cruise on over to historyhits.tv and get a month for free. Check it out. See if you like it. In the meantime, though, everybody, here is Dan Jones talking about the Crusades. Dan Jones, thank you very much for coming back on the show. It's a big subject. One of the biggest. When you set out to write about the Crusades. Are you mindful of what they mean to people today? This is not just a kind of abstract sort of self-contained bit of medieval history. I'm always
1: interested in topics that can draw like the Middle Ages together with the modern. So things that people will have heard of, you know, to put it at, at its simplest. And I think Crusades is one of those terms that just that's just bled into our vocabulary today. So While I've been writing, I've had a Google alert for crusades. And every day it comes up with some really amazing stuff. So, you know, you get political stuff like Boris Johnson is on a crusade to hire more police officers or whatever. Or, um, you know, the Chinese are on a crusade to, I don't know, destroy the American economy or whatever it may be. One came through this week um, from a website which said, Dr. Jen Gunter is on a crusade to save your vagina. And I mean, uh, like. That is not an appropriate mental image, uh, but so it shows you the way that Crusaders bled into our language. It also has less humorous um, political uh, implications and uses. So the alt-right, we know, um, the Crusades is an absolute catnip for the alt-right. And if you look at, for example, the manifesto of the guy who shot up the mosques in Christchurch earlier this year, full of Crusades references, he daubed Crusader battles all over the weapons he was using, the manifesto said things like, what would Pope Urban II do? And on the on the other side, if you like, um, when ISIS-affiliated groups bombed uh, hotels and churches in Sri Lanka this Easter, again, you know, the, the statements taking credit for it said things like, we've attacked citizens of the Crusader Coalition on their infidel holiday. So... What that says to you is that there are people in this world who believe that, in some sense, the Crusades are still continuing. And for that reason, if none other, I think it's worth considering and writing about what the Crusades were really about, um, partly so we can understand the difference between the history and, and what's happening today, and partly so we can see that this is really something that doesn't bear repeating.
0: What do people, what do people mean by the Crusades?
1: Well, if you've been around at the time of the Crusade, so what we're talking about now, roughly speaking, is from the end of the eleventh century, ten um, nineties. You could you could date it earlier to ten sixties, as I do in in the book, through to I finish a story in fourteen ninety-two, end, end of the fifteenth century. Nobody at that time was talking about going on crusades. You know, it's 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 quite a historian's term. However, Uh, they knew very well what a crusader was so this a crusader was somebody who'd responded to uh, the call of the papacy the call of a pope to go and fight a holy war in the name of christ against the enemies of the church now at the beginning of the period that meant uh well in the case of the first crusade marching overland from western europe to constantinople modern istanbul uh, to assist the Byzantine emperor there in his war against the Turks, who were dismembering piece by piece Byzantine uh, territories in Asia Minor, and then marching on to Jerusalem to quote unquote liberate Jerusalem from Islamic rule. That's the sort of centre piece of the Crusades. Jerusalem was taken 1099. A series of Crusader states were set up in what's now uh, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel but there were other crusading arenas as well so there were holy wars being fought between christian powers and islamic powers in modern spain and portugal there were wars being fought against um, pagans in the baltic there was the Albigensian crusade against cathar heretics in southern france there were wars fought in egypt in north africa there were eventually by the time you get towards the the, the sort of high middle ages and the end of, of the middle ages there are wars being fought between rival Christian powers all over Europe that are being called crusades. You could sort of just apply to the Pope and have your war rubber stamped as a crusade. Um, and that gave it some spiritual uh, legitimacy or um, or apparent validity um, that it might otherwise have lacked. So the idea of the crusade, in short, I guess, is, is about fighting the en- perceived enemies of the church. Um, what was clearer was what a crusader was. Now, if you'd agreed to join in one of these wars, whichever it might be, you took uh, a formal vow that you were going to go on on crusade. Your reward for doing so was remission of sins. In other words, all the sins that you'd committed on earth, uh, if you confessed them, then by going on crusade or going to fight for for the church, you would be uh, excused those sins. So your passage to heaven would be um, would be made much speedier than it would have been otherwise. Uh, you were marked out as a crusader by having sewn or pinned onto your clothes a cross made of cloth. Or in some cases, if you're you feeling pretty uh, extreme about it, you might cut, decide to carve the uh, the cross into your forehead or brand it on your skin. Um, these are all sort of possibilities. But but the idea is, in Latin, the word crucis one signed with the cross. And everybody knew what a crusader looked like. They didn't all look the same. You know, our, our image today is of a, a Templar knight. Usually, when we think about crusaders, that's not, not uh, We can talk a bit, a bit about this, but that's not at all what all crusaders looked like. However, it was pretty obvious um, to anyone at the time who was a crusader and who wasn't.
0: Why does why does crusading happen? Why does it start?
1: As usual, you're asking the uh, the simple questions, but they are the, the most with com- the most complex answers. So if you want to usually when people tell the story of the crusades they start with pope urban ii at clermont in france 1095 and he just apparently out of nowhere stands up and says right lads i've got an idea we're going to head to constantinople and jerusalem liberate constantinople liberate jerusalem and the reward will be uh, you know remission of sins you'll find it in heaven um and often that seems very weird and 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 seems to be just an illustration of how bizarre medieval people were Actually, of course, if you, if you look at the history of crusading, you see something rather different. Um, during the sort of 1060s, 1070s, 1080s, a lot of different sort of political and military and, and theological um, strands all sort of coalesced and came together. It was undoubtedly true that the Byzantine Empire was under threat from Turkic uh, warlords pushing. Westwards through Asia Minor, um, the Byzantine emperor had, or, or succession of emperors, had made appeals to the West, to, to Christians of the West, saying, "Come and help us." There was also the fact that there was a schism between the Eastern and Western churches, and a succession of popes had scratched their heads uh, over ways that this schism, this falling out, could be uh, could be fixed, could be reconciled. In Western Europe, within Western Christendom, there was similarly a, a A long history of political tension between popes on the one hand and secular rulers particularly you know German emperors on the other and there there was a need to reconcile that situation in Spain and Portugal there'd been wars between Christian powers and Islamic powers going on from from the 1060s you know clashes all over the you know you could date clashes between Islamic powers and Christian powers in Spain as far back as the 8th century if you really wanted to In Sicily, there'd been, you know, the Normans had arrived in Sicily and conquered Sicily from the Arabs. And, you know, the the Islamic take on the beginning of the Crusades is actually that if you look around the Mediterranean in 1060s, 1070s, you see all over the place clashes between Christian and Muslim powers. And what happens in the 1090s is that these are sort of drawn together and given a sort of unifying framework by Urban II. So there are all of these different strands coming together but uh, something definitely happens in the 1090s there's another major appeal from uh, Byzantium to the west Urban II becomes pope and really arrives uh, as uh, you know in as pope um with a very strong urge to do something about both schism between east and western church and and political tensions within western Christendom and you have He latches on to the idea of getting people to go and fight in the name of Christ as as a solution for all of these problems. You know, you can can address all of these problems in one go if you call for a mass uh, military expedition under the banner of the papacy.
0: I mean, are there mercenary reasons why people are going? I mean, is there a sense that you're going to benefit, not just in the afterlife, but in the present life as well?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people went crusading with... Uh, a whole sort of ragtag mixed bag of uh, of motivations they carried with them remission of sins might be very important and and was very important to a lot of people it was a very appealing idea that you could sort of wipe the slate clean and start again if you went on on this this journey i think there's a in the late 11th century there is a sort of acquisitive military class of knights whose whole stock in trade is going and fighting and and you know, and that's how you earned your living. You thought you because you got paid, you thought because you collected booty, and, and this seemed like a promising place to go. Uh, a lot of the Crusaders, or the leaders of the Crusade, found that eventually, when, they, when the Crusader state, states in the East were set up, that um, here was sort of virgin territory that could be for, carved into Western-style feudal, little blocks you know and so you had kings and counts and princes and um all the, the sort of the aristocratic ranks that were familiar from western europe and the land that came with it um so there, there, and throughout the history of crusading you do see a lot of people who go crusading because there's money in it i mean my favorite of those i think after the first crusade at the beginning of the 12th century um The first major Western king to visit the Crusader States, to visit the East, is a guy called Sigurd I, King of Norway. Sigurd I, King of Norway, was a Christian, but he was also essentially a sort of late-period Viking. And his stock in trade of the Vikings, as you know very well, is uh, go forth and plunder. Sigurd I of of Norway became king at the age of 13. His brother was co-king, decided that Norway wasn't big enough for the two of them. They set off with... So the bards tell us, um, 60 ships, 10,000 men, probably not quite that many, and went on this incredible plundering mission around, well, he he went to England, then France, and then stopped off all the way down the coast of what's now Spain and Portugal, plundering as he went, attacking Muslim um, townsfolk, uh, pirates, you name it, he'd attack them, take their ships, take their gold, take their women, move on through the Straits of Gibraltar, did the same in the Balearic Islands, you know, Minorca, Formentera, stopped off in Sicily, partied a bit with the King of Sicily, another, you know, uh, young Roger II of Sicily. By the time he wound up in the Holy Land, helped with the siege of Sidon, travelled to Jerusalem, was given a little fragment of, the, of Christ's cross. By the time he left the Holy Land, heading for Constantinople, he had so much booty they were attaching it to the masts and the sails of the ships, and it was sort of glinting as the glinting in the sun as they went. So I think, you know, you, you look at a character like Sigurd of Norway, or later in the period, um, the merchants from Venice and Pisa and Genoa who went crusading because they could set themselves up in um, newly conquered crusader cities and have extremely lucrative trading privileges there. You look at people like that and say... Probably the primary motivation for going crusading was uh, gold, was wealth. But I don't think you can say it was the only motivation, because, of course, we're dealing with a much more religious society than we live in today in the West. And uh, it's always very hard to untangle people's motivations. The analogy I use usually is, uh, you've never been to a pub and sat next to the, the kind of... the boar who tells you that the Iraq war was all about the oil. And and you think about that and say, well, I'm sure there was a little bit, maybe even a lot bit uh, of the motivation of the second Gulf War had to do with oil. But you can't disentangle that from George W. Bush's uh, deeply held Christian faith. You know, people like Cheney and Rumsfeld knew that if you... Put biblical slogans on <laughs> papers that went on W's desk. He was more likely to read them. His sort of his Christianity played a role. His uh, his genuine sort of attachment to kind of neoliberal democratic ideas, or at least it's not just about the oil. And in the same way, in the Crusades, it's
0: not never just about the gold. So it sounds to me like you're saying that there is something big going on here. I mean, obviously, 12th century societies, 11th century societies didn't need much cause to go to war against each other. But there is a a bigger idea here happening. Yeah, I think that's fair.
1: And I think that um, if you take away the brand of the crusade, as as we've quite often attached it as historians, but as as also existed at the time, um, you could see that there'd been clashes. For example, Spain and Portugal was a, a great example. There'd been clashes between Muslim and Christian powers in Spain and Portugal, for not just decades, but for centuries before the Crusading period. Um, you know, when Gibbon wrote about this, you know, he he traced the history all the way back to um the eighth century. Yeah. Uh, so when we look at the Crusading period, we're often applying this um this idea to wars that would probably have been going on anyway. Of course there'd have been clashes between uh, christian powers and muslim powers in spain and Port- modern spain and portugal that's just the way that geography had dictated it um however of course once once the idea of crusading is out there in the wild it you have a feedback loop between um motivation and political fact and and and, and wars that would have been going on anyway are probably exacerbated by the fact of the crusade or legitimised or justified. Do you see what I mean? So the, the two things enter into a relationship with one another.
0: How many Crusades were there?
1: Well, the numbering of the Crusades uh, is is a bit of a, a sticky issue. People usually give up after five. Okay, fine. And so often people will say, oh, there were eight or nine numbered Crusades which went to mostly aimed towards Jerusalem, even if they didn't get there. I mean, we're, we're, we're in pretty good agreement up to the 5th. Okay. And then they start to get other titles like the Baron's Crusade or the Crusade of Louis the Ninth, and, and even I sometimes lose track of, wait, was that the 7th or the 8th? The, the point is, there were tons and tons of them. And the, but those were just the Crusades to the East.
0: All right, Dan Jones, you're the expert. Let's go through the Crusades. Start at number one. What happened?
1: Um, potted history of the First Crusade. 1095, Urban II stands up in Clermont and says, let's go fight. We're going to go to Constantinople and we're going to help the Byzantine Empire, um, which is under attack from Turkish warlords heading through Asia Minor. And then we're going to go on and we're going to take Jerusalem. And this sounds like a crazy scheme. Um, In many ways, it is a crazy scheme, um, but somehow or other, it works. There are various waves of people set off from Western Europe. The first, known as the People's Crusade, led by a man called Peter the Hermit, a, a sort of a, dem- a shabby demagogue who has the rare ability to rouse the basest instincts in people and give it the veneer or the patina of respectability, a sort of um, sackcloth-wearing Dominic Cummings, if you like, who just bounces along and and mm, rowdy and uh, and intemperate people find him um, very charming and, and follow him. The People's Crusade sets off through the Rhineland um, the terrible pogroms and massacres of Jewish people in cities like Mainz and Worms, uh, the, the, these sort of rabble, very unsuited to fighting most of them, head off down the Danube, go through the Balkans, wind up in Constantinople, heavily depleted because along the way they've, they've usually annoyed everybody <laughs> whose territory they've gone through and been sort of periodically massacred themselves. And they wind up in Constantinople in pretty bad shape. Behind them comes a much more organised wave of crusaders, uh, sometimes called the Prince's Crusade. This is led by aristocratic people. Um, quite a lot of Normans of southern Italy involved, men like Beaumont of Toronto, um, southern French lords like Raymond of Toulouse. Um, there's a, a papal legate, Adam of Lepuy. It's a bit more organised. This is the sort of crusade that Urban II had in mind, people who were competent and capable and able to fight. Well, they set off along broadly the same route, down the Danube, through the Balkans, Constantinople. And then all of the crusaders, sort of a mass in Constantinople, crossed the Bosphorus and aided with some Byzantine military advisors, uh, head out into Turkish-held Asia Minor. Um, And I suspect that the emperor, Alexius Komnenos, didn't think he'd see them again. However, uh, miraculously, as it appeared to them, they survived two great military engagements: one at Nicaea, one at Dorylaeum, ten ninety seven. They made it through Asia Minor, came down out of the mountains into northern Syria, besieged the great city of Antioch, managed to take Antioch, credible military feat. Were then themselves besieged in Antioch uh, and fought off their besiegers, marched down the coast. Um, July 1099 besieged Jerusalem itself and took Jerusalem. And that, that's the sort of, that was the miraculous end goal of, of the First Crusade achieved. Um, incredible. Absolutely incredible. Urban seven, uh, sorry, Urban II never heard about it because he died um, before news of uh, the fall of Jerusalem could reach him. However, this crazy mission that he'd preached in 1095, four years late, nearly four years later, had, had somehow come to fruition. Um, in some ways, it would have been better for everybody if it had failed in Asia Minor, because now, having taken Jerusalem, Jerusalem had to be defended. Jerusalem, the place of Christ's ministry, of his death, of his resurrection, um, the centre of the world, if you look at medieval maps um, of the time, could not be lost that once had been taken. So around Jerusalem and, and other cities in the region that had been conquered were set up a series of crusader states. The kingdom of Jerusalem, county of Tripoli, the county of Edessa, the principality of Antioch in the north. Uh, and from this point on, the story of the crusades is really one of, of desperate attempts to resupply, to fortify, to, uh, to embed uh, new waves of settlers and to revenge um, on those periods, on, on those occasions, when um, important parts of these Crusader states were conquered.
0: Hi everyone, you listen to History Hit. we got Dan Jones on talking about the Crusades. More after this.
1: I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, subscribe now and follow me on not just the Tudors from history hit wherever you get your podcasts a lot can happen in the next 3 years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are Beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery Going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up, it takes about two minutes, and you're gonna love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift. By visiting auraframes.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A U R A frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Did this come at a bad time for the Islamic world? I mean, was, it, was, it, was there an element of luck involved? Was there um, a crisis that meant that? the forces of of, uh, the Caliphate were less likely to be able to fight back?
1: When you read the Islamic sources uh, trying to make sense of the First Crusade, um, it's very striking. Two things are very striking. The first is that uh, they they tend to view it in a much broader context than the Christian sources, who see this as a uh, one-off, God-sent miracle. Uh, Ibn al-Athir, the great Iraqi chronicler of the Crusading period, uh, says, this was all part of uh, a very strange phenomenon where the Christian powers were, um, were on the march against Muslim powers across the Mediterranean. But he specifically, and other chroniclers, specifically attribute the success of the First Crusade to the, um, to the fractured, um, disunified nature of the Islamic world of the Near East. You had the great Seljuk empire, a sort of Turkic uh, Sunni, Empire ruled from capitals including Merv and Baghdad uh, war was splintering and weakening, and authority was was falling apart. Uh, and and various different rival Atabegs and Emirs ruling rival cities, Mosul and Damascus and Aleppo, were all at war with each other. To the south, you had the Fatimid Caliphate uh, based in Cairo and Shiite, uh, implacably opposed to the Sunni Turks. Further north. Uh, the, these two were enemies as well. And so the explanation given a lot of Islamic sources is because the, uh, because the Muslim world was um, in a state of disunity, the Franks, as they call them, the French, uh, marched in and took advantage of that situation. So that, that's absolutely the way it's, uh, it's understood um, in those narratives. Second Crusade. We mentioned the county of Edessa. The county of Edessa had been set up, um, in fact, it was the first of the, of the Crusader states to be set up during the, the First Crusade. But in 1144, it was uh, the, the capital city, Edessa, and much territory around it was taken by Zengi, a, a fierce and extremely violent and drunken warlord. News of this got back to the West, where crusading sort of enthusiasm had really been dipping in the centuries following the First Crusade, but shock horror when Edessa fell. Um, a crusade was organized on the principle largely that uh, the loss of Edessa demonstrated how sort of weak and um, sort of lily livered the new generation of, uh, of rulers in the West had become in comparison to their, their brave and, um, and, and bold forefathers. The crusade was principally led by two kings, Louis VII of France and Conrad III, the German king. Um, both of them led armies which went deliberately in the footsteps of their forefathers. They tried to go overland when a sea route might have been a better idea. Uh, to Constantinople, they tried to go overland when a sea route might have been a better idea. To Constantinople, across the Bosphorus, through Asia Minor, Antioch, down to Jerusalem. Same route as the First Crusaders. Terrible, terrible idea. Absolutely terrible idea because, uh, among many other reasons, Louis Seventh and Conrad Third were not a patch on the leaders of the First Crusade. Louis VII in particular, his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, described him as more a monk than a king, and he was useless as a a military leader in that context. Um, The Turks of Asia Minor had their stuff together. They were much more organised than they had been in the 1090s. And so the armies of the Second Crusade were butchered and very lucky to make it to the Holy Land at all. By the time they got there, Edessa was long gone. Zengi was dead. And they were scratching their heads as to what on earth they were going to do. So a sort of ham-fisted plot or or plan of action was cooked up by which they were just going to go and attack Damascus. Why Damascus? Well, strategically quite important city, very important city, uh, very wealthy, but um, not the sort of place you go and besiege just with a a plan worked out on the back of a fag packet. Um, The siege of Damascus was an absolute... uh, Fiasco, it was over within a week and the crusade broke up in some acrimony. Louis Seventh of France stayed in the Holy Land for a bit, touring the shrines, but he'd fallen out massively with his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was subsequently accused of having an affair with her uncle, Prince of Antioch. By the time they got back to the West, they were ready to be divorced and, and well, English and French history took a different course because of that. Um, not uh, a crusade to be proud of. The, the one interest, In fact, there were, there were two interesting achievements in the Second Crusade. The first was that English and Flemish crusaders who did take a sea route rather than the overland route on their way round um, what's now Portugal conquered the uh, significant and very wealthy Islamic city of Lisbon. We call it Lisbon now. And that was a major gain for the Second Crusade in 1147. In some ways, even more important was the fact that there were some German nobles in Saxony in 1147 who decided they didn't really fancy the trip to Jerusalem. And they petitioned the Pope successfully to be allowed to attack non-Christians closer to home, pagan people in uh, the Baltic states. And the Wendish Crusade, as it's known, it's a bit of a minor crusade which, uh, which took place in 1147, 1148, started a pattern of crusading against, against Baltic pagans, eventually in Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, up to Finland, uh, which would continue for hundreds of years and become a major, major crusading arena, uh, particularly in the later Middle Ages. So that probably was the, the, the most important lasting outcome of the Second Crusade, not the fiasco in the Holy Lands. Number three, third Crusade. Everyone knows about the Third Crusade. This is Richard the Lionheart and Saladin, right? If you close your eyes and think of a crusade, if you you ever do such a thing, it's probably the third crusade you're thinking about. 1187, city of Jerusalem was taken by Saladin, a great uh, Kurdish general who'd risen to become um, sultan of Egypt and Syria, united the Islamic world under Sunni rule, uh, crushed the Fatimid caliphate, um, deposed the last caliph, and was now taking aim under the banner of jihad against the the Christians of the Crusader states, destroyed a Crusader army at the Battle of Hattin on the 4th of July, 1187, subsequently marched on Jerusalem and took it. Jerusalem fell, the relic of the True Cross was captured, the King of Jerusalem was captured. Seismic shock went through the Christian world, particularly in the West. And kings, including Philip Augustus of France, Philip II of France, and Richard I, the new King of England, Richard the Lionheart, answered the call to Crusade. Turned their kingdoms over to preparing for war, sails to the Holy Land, uh, successfully besieged the city of Acre, or Acre, which had become, uh, which would become the cap- new capital of the, the, the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Uh, went on a you know a march down the coast, uh, fighting Saladin's armies all the way. Richard twice approached Jerusalem with the intention of taking it back from Saladin, and twice realized he didn't have the numbers to do it. So eventually, brokered peace with Saladin. Uh, Took ships and went home. Um, a heroic sort of uh, legend sprang up around the Third Crusade, almost from the minute it was taking place. I mean, both Richard and Saladin surrounded themselves with people whom they knew were going to write their stories and uh, and write them up in the most kind of chivalric and um, and uh, heroic way imaginable. I. It's a very familiar story, and actually one, one of the fun things I, I did when I was writing Crusaders was to take a slightly different approach to it. So I, I discovered a character called Margaret of Beverley. Well, I came across, I didn't discover, and scholars knew about her, but no one's really written about her at any, any length in a sort of popular book about the Crusades. Margaret of Beverley gives you a great view of the Third Crusade because she's a sort of Yorkshire lass who goes on pilgrimage to Jerusalem and gets stuck in Jerusalem when Saladin's armies are outside the walls. And the account of her sort of terrible time during the Third Crusade has her on the walls of Jerusalem with a slingshot throwing stones at Saladin's army and uh, wearing a cooking pot for a helmet on her head. And uh, and, and she has the most incredible adventures around the Holy Land. So when I was writing about the Third Crusade, I really tried hard to give a, a... a woman's view of what the Third Crusade was all about. So that was that was that was fun. Fourth Crusade. Fourth Crusade. Absolute joke. Fourth Crusade. I mean, really, an extraordinary event that um, we don't talk about the Fourth Crusade too much because uh, it was extremely disreputable um, at, at every stage. In the right at the end of the 12th century um, after the third crusade had just sort of narrowly failed to take Jerusalem um, a new crusade was was launched and it was it was sort of taken up relatively enthusiastically by a small group of uh, French lords but it was very clear that there weren't going to be any kings this time going crusading so this group of French lords scratched their heads a bit and thought how are we going to get Armies ourselves to the Holy Land. So they went to Venice, greatest sort of shipbuilding uh, merchant republic um, of, the, of the Adriatic. And they broke a the deal with the rulers of Venice, and principally the 90 year old blind doge of Venice, Enrico Dandolo, by which Venice would build them sufficient ships to carry a, a vast army. Um, the secret destination was Alexandria in, in northern Egypt, from, from which they then proceed on to Jerusalem. So for a year, Venice and all its, its, you know, its laborers and its shipbuilders and its merchants toiled to prepare a, a crusading fleet. A year later, when they had indeed prepared sort of 100-odd ships, galleys, uh, and, and provisioned them sufficiently for a major army to go to the Holy Land. Uh, The French turned up and they had barely a third of the number of people that they thought they'd been able to raise. They had nothing like the amount of money that they were in the hole for to the Venetians. And so they all looked at each other and realized that there was only one possible outcome. And that was that the Venetians were now going to be in charge of the crusade. Uh, And so instead of going to Alexandria and on to Jerusalem, the crusading fleet left Venice went to the Croatian coast, the city of Zara, uh, where a Christian crusading population hung like crosses from the walls and said, we're crusaders too. Venetians didn't care. They had beef with the citizens of Zara. They thought they should be obedient to Venice instead of Hungary. And so they pillaged a major Christian city, burned half of it to the ground and left out. They then went on to an even bigger Christian city, the city of Constantinople. And through a, a series of sort of torturous politics involving rival claimants to the imperial throne in Constantinople, um, you ended up with the rather shameful sight in 1204 of the crusaders on the Fourth Crusade uh, scaling the walls of Constantinople, invading the city, pillaging it, burning acres of it to the ground. I mean, if, if anyone's watched the end of Game of Thrones, you remember a, a Dragons over King's Landing. That's what we're talking about in the Fourth Crusade. Um, the Venetians, very happily for them, made their money back probably several times over. And if you go to Venice to Mark's Basilica today, you can still see the great bronze horses that they nicked from Constantinople and took back to Venice. Enrico Dandolo, the, the blind 90-something-year-old doge, died in Constantinople uh, in 1205 and was the only person ever, I think, to be buried in the Hagia Sophia. Um, this spelled really the end for the Byzantine Greek Empire. A Latin emperor of Constantinople, Baldwin of Flanders, was installed. And then he had a series of sort of rather tin-pot Latin emperors before a, a, a weakened um, and fairly unstable Byzantine restoration. The The upshot of the Fourth Crusade was the destruction of a Christian Empire, the um, the destruction of two very important, one extremely important Christian cities. Absolutely no crusading done against any Muslim enemies at all, save for a few lords like um, Simon de Montfort the Elder and and others who who realised pretty early on the way the wind was blowing, left the crusade and went themselves on a sort of armed pilgrimage to the Holy Land. But nothing of any any serious significance. Um, a total disaster, a total fiasco, and in the words of one um, Greek chronicle of the time, absolutely shameful. The Fifth Crusade. Early 13th century, um, Pope Innocent III, great reforming pope, a great legalist, a great believer in the the, uh, the spiritual supremacy and the political supremacy of, of the Roman Church, uh, decided that, the fourth crusade simply wouldn't do, and the fact that they'd gone and burned Constantinople really wasn't um, wasn't very becoming of of uh, of the Latins, the, um, people of the Roman Church. So, uh, organised, although he didn't live to see it completed, a great crusade that w- would weaken the uh, the sultans of Egypt who were controlling Jerusalem by attacking them in their own backyard. So. The Fifth Crusade took aim at the city of Damietta in the Nile Delta. Extraordinary accounts of of the siege of Damietta which went on for months and months and months. Eventually Damietta was taken by uh, by the Crusaders they sat in damietta for a bit and then decided to march on cairo march up the nile to cairo absolutely um dreadful decision to take because they didn't know anything about the nile didn't understand how it flooded they didn't understand how it was controlled and the uh, the sultan of the time al-kamil allowed the crusaders to march up the nile and then as soon as they got so far they couldn't turn back uh, opened all the sluice gates and canals that allowed that controlled the flow of water out of the nile into fields flooded all the land around uh, and then left the crusaders either to drown or beg for his assistance in leaving kicked him out of damietta and uh, once again the uh, just as with the fourth crusade you know a major expedition of the church had ended in very little other than um than waste death and um uh well embarrassment I suppose. That was the Fifth Crusade. Now, after the Fifth Crusade, the numbers get a little bit sticky because um, some time had elapsed since Jerusalem had been lost. You know, a couple of generations. The examples of the Fourth and Fifth Crusades were uh, sufficient to illustrate the the grievous difficulty. Um, of the ambition of retaking Jerusalem. And so you really see throughout the 13th century, crusading start to fragment. Now, much of that is down to Innocent III himself, who throughout his papacy at the beginning of the 13th century made it his business to really expand the institution of the crusade. So instead of just saying like, crusading is for for going and taking aim at at Jerusalem and lands close by, and to sanctify fighting in Spain and Portugal. Innocent um, gave his permission for An escalation in fighting against the pagans in the Baltic. Innocent um, declared that wars against Cathar heretics in southern France, uh, which were really being fought to to increase the power of the French crown over southern French lords who had traditionally been independent. Innocent declared that that was a crusade. There were crusades, I mean I think over the course of his papacy Innocent preached seven or eight crusades not one of which actually went anywhere near Jerusalem. I mean, unless you count the fifth ending up in Alexandria, uh, in Damietta, I'm sorry. Um, By the the end of Innocent's Papacy, therefore, uh, crusading had been extended, but it had also been um, weakened somewhat, it had been diffused. and, And during the 13th century, that process continued apace. So there was diminishing support for the crusader states of the east. The defence of those was left up to military orders like the Templars, the Hospitallers, the Teutonic Knights. Um, Crusading was much easier to do closer to home. And popes were were starting to use crusade just as a weapon against enemies wherever they could be found, frequently Christian enemies. So the most ridiculous example of this that you see is uh, the wars between the papacy and the Hohenstaufen, the German emperors. And particularly the great Holy Roman Emperor and King of Sicily Frederick II Hohenstaufen, who was supposed to go on the Fifth Crusade, made lots of excuses and didn't. Uh, eventually turned up in the Holy Land in 1229, and through his friendship with the Sultan Al-Kamil and his 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 great understanding of Islamic culture, thanks to his his upbringing on Sicily, negotiated a peace by which Jerusalem was mostly returned to christian rule for nearly 15 years um however because frederick hohenstaufen had fallen out with successive popes he did this while excommunicated from the church so um i like to say that had frederick hohenstaufen been alive today and brought about the sort of peace he did in the middle east uh, they would have given him the nobel peace prize but in the middle ages just because of his friendship with sultans and his uh, antipathy Um, with popes. They excommunicated him four times and eventually drove him to his death.
0: And and I notice your book goes up until the 15th century. Why do you extend that far forward? Is it because you look behind some of the uh, impulses, for example, the Portuguese, they start creeping down the coast of Africa. They are influenced by crusading ideology.
1: Well, some histories, quite a lot of histories of crusading finish the story in 1291. 1291, Acre, Acre the capital city of Kingdom of Jerusalem, was lost to the Mamluks, slave soldier caste, uh, Turkic by origin, but who'd risen up to take take political control in Egypt and Syria. Um, they swept the Crusader states effectively into the sea and the Kingdom of Jerusalem became a sort of rump um, state in exile on the island of Cyprus. In retrospect, it's clear that the Crusader states were never revived in any meaningful form, and that Jerusalem was was long lost. Now, people didn't have the benefit of hindsight, of course, at the time. So, I think there's there's certainly good reasons to continue the story of crusading past the loss of Acre in 1291. Into the early fourteenth century, when grand plans by people like Marina Sanudo of Venice were being drawn up for, for a big new crusade on the scale of the first second, third crusades, the Wars of the Reconquista were continuing and continued all the way up till fourteen ninety two when the last um, the last Muslim ruler of granada was uh, was um, handed over the keys to the Alhambra to the Catholic monarchs Ferdinand and Isabella and um, There are continuing wars right into the fifteenth century. The Teutonic Knights are still fighting pagans. Henry Bolingbroke, future Henry IV of England, went fighting a couple of seasons with the Teutonic Knights when he was a young man. Um, crusades were being declared willy-nilly. You know, John of Gaunt, Bolingbroke's father, when he was fighting down in Castile and, and Portugal, had his war against other Christian kings declared a crusade. So I think I'm writing about crusaders, and there is absolutely no question that in the 15th century, there were tons of people who considered themselves crusaders. Indeed, well into the 16th century, you know, Christians fighting against the Ottomans on, in Eastern Europe and, um, you know, towards the, the edge of the Ottoman Empire, they considered themselves crusaders. 1798, you could take the story up to if you wanted, with Napoleon Bonaparte stopping in Malta and, and getting rid of the last, you know, vestiges of the, the hospitalers, you know, a crusading military order. We can take the story as far as we want. I finished Crusaders, the book, in 1492 because I think this moment of uh, the end of the Reconquista is very important. It's important partly because um, the last rule of a a significant Islamic um, power on mainland Europe is extinguished. But also because there's the rather neat uh, fact that in the crowd watching the Alhambra being surrendered on the 1st of January 1492 is a young man called Christopher Columbus. And Columbus then sets out across the Atlantic, and we we know the story of of Columbus's um, encounters with the new world very well. But Columbus comes back, you know, writing these wide-eyed letters saying, you'll never guess what I've just found over there. There's a whole bunch of other non-Christian people who we can convert or kill and a load of their stuff that we can plunder. And so it seems to me that all of these essential energies That had gone into crusading throughout the earlier or throughout the the Middle Ages were now transferred, if you like, westwards. And all of that sort of uh, militant Christian acquisitiveness and went across the Atlantic instead of towards Jerusalem.
0: Do the crusades matter more today in the West, than the memory of them or the, the myths about them, or in the East, in the Islamic world? There are profoundly
1: different approaches to thinking about the Crusades between this Western Christian world, I think, and the, the modern Islamic world. Um, we overuse the word Crusade massively in the West today. I think we have a very um, uh, elevated, an absurdly elevated view at times of as to how important the Crusades were to the rest of the world. Uh, Clearly very important to the culture of medieval Europe and and the sort of the the politics and and military uh, events in in Western Europe. However, if you look at it from an Eastern perspective, from an, an Islamic perspective, there was a lot more going on during the Middle Ages than the Franks occasionally turning up and sort of biting you like a sort of annoying gnat. I mean, the the size of the Crusader states within the broader Islamic world was absolutely tiny. And uh, the arrival of sort of major Crusades, very sporadic, once every couple of generations, for a large part. Um, The net legacy of Crusading was relatively slight. I mean, if you go to Jerusalem even today, you still won't see a great deal. I mean, you'll see there are crusader castles in Israel and Syria, of course, a great castles like Crack Chevalier and um, the, the, the ruins of um, Chateau Pelerin or whatever. But really, the legacy is, is not profound um, in the Islamic world, with maybe one exception. Um, which is to say that it's very easily weaponized um, and is very readily weaponized today by groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS because it has enormous propaganda value uh, as, as a historical event that appears to show permanent division between the Western Christian world and the Eastern Islamic world. And it appears to show a sort of historical continuum that can be mapped onto the world today um that's stupid propaganda obviously um the, the real story if you actually look at it of of relations between the islamic world and the western christian world during the middle ages is the boring stuff of people living and surviving side by side and trading with one another and generally getting on okay and exchanging knowledge and um and skills and people we don't like to 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 concentrate on that because it's not stuff of rollicking great battles and um, and dramatic events. I think it's also important to say that during the the Middle Ages, um, the Islamic world was much more um, riven by sectarian divides between Sunni and Shia, Arab and Turk. Just as today, you know, the the rivalries between is uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, Sunni and Shia. Uh, uh, equally, if not more, significant than um, relations between Islam and the West. So we can overrate the importance of the Crusades. But that said, given that crusading is such catnip to the alt-right, such catnip to Islamist terrorists, um, it clearly hasn't gone away. And as long as there are people who consider themselves crusaders, then this story is, is going to be in our lives.
0: Diane Jones, thank you very much. I
1: feel the have of history on our shoulders. All oh, this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part
0: of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Hi everyone, thanks for reaching the end of this podcast. Most of you are probably asleep, so I'm talking to your snoring forms, but anyone who's awake, it would be great if you could do me a quick favour, head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate it five stars and then leave a nice glowing review. It makes a huge difference for some reason to how these podcasts do. Madness, I know, but them's the rules. Then we go further up the charts, more people listen to us, and everything will be awesome. So thank you so much. Now sleep well.
1: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ